Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. I'm thrilled to introduce you today to Nadia, a Muslim American who writes under the name Journey to Table. As she tells us today, the journey to her table and the food she sets on it goes back generations. It traveled from pre-partition Pakistan to Nairobi, Kenya, through Great Britain, and finally to New York City. But the food traditions that influenced Nadia's table didn't stagnate there. Rather, as Nadia's father, a forward-thinking immigrant entrepreneur, focused on improving society one life at a time, he took a young and fearless Nadia to his meetings in every corner of New York City. In those places, her palate and repertoire expanded to include the many, many nations represented in that vibrant city. I am so happy that you're joining us for this fast-paced conversation covering faith and fasting, history, and above all, Nadia's incredible parents. Before we start, pause to do two things, please. First, make sure that you subscribe right now for all of the powerful upcoming episodes. And second, you may want to grab a tissue because this episode definitely brought out all the emotions in me. Oh, one final note on this conversation. It was recorded August 14th, which may be helpful to know for certain parts of the conversation. Here's Nadia. Now, but you, thank you for reaching out. I'm so happy we're doing this. Oh, uh, it's like one of my favorite loves to do. So um, I'm going to learn from you along the way for sure. Oh. I don't know about that, but I have a lot to learn from you. And I, I just love your personality. I do. It's funny you bring up Instagram because I feel like there is a lot of, um, well, let's put it this way. I think there's a lot of personas on Instagram and not always so much personality, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. Yep. And I feel like yours just comes shining through and you're just. You're just out there as you. And so it was a very, it was a very easy email to send. No. Yeah. <laughs> right. Although I am an acquired taste. My husband's like, I don't, does everyone really connect with your craziness? And I was like, <laughs> there are crazies out there. Okay. You're not one of them. And that's why you and I are just a, one of those odd couples, but it's funny. I get my outlet from my people on Instagram. So, you know, but don't you think maybe it is people that aren't, that are a little more reserved that are maybe drawn mm. to it because maybe. they, yep. They admire it, right? I guess so. Yeah, because it's so funny. Growing up, I had a lot of friends that were the opposite of me. And mm-hmm. I was like, what is it about me that gravitates towards them was just kind of their relaxed attitude mm-hmm. in life, which I I don't have. I mean, I have an attitude that is can be calming, mm-hmm. um, but it's far and few in between as examples. And I really probably gravitate towards them. They have said that they've gravitated towards like you know just kind of loudness and kind of Mm -hmm. like vibrant and just being completely and utterly myself and that they Mm -hmm. can admire that and I was I I guess it's the confidence in it my dad had Mm -hmm. always like said just completely be yourself and he did not care that I made a fool of myself at a party whereas in our culture if no don't say that or no this is not the right place to speak about this and I'm like, mm. but why? And my dad never really just stopped me. What a <laughs> gift. That's a gift from your dad. Totally. No, he's an, he was just one big gift, honestly. Oh, <laughs> yeah. wow. And in your culture, when they say, you know, it's not the time to talk about this, like sometimes yeah. when I find people say that, they mean it's never a good time to talk oh, about this. Good point. Good point. <laughs> good point. Oh, when my is the right good- time? Yeah. 
Exactly. Well, exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's um. Well, I'm going to just jump right in because I have so many questions. And another reason I'm drawn to you is because I feel that you will understand that they come from a true desire to know, to understand. So I'm going to just start with this. Um, A couple weeks ago, I know... You were you were flouncing around, trying on outfits and talking about where yes. you were going to go for, I think it's Eid, is how to pronounce it? Eid. Uh, Eid. Eid. Okay, Eid. Yep. And I, I was so confused because I thought <laughs> Eid was in May. Yes. So can you first back up? I didn't even know how to pronounce it properly, unfortunately. So yeah. tell us all what Eid is, what its significance is to you, and then why was I confused about the timing of Eid? Explain that to me. No. Okay. So common, common question. Um, okay. Don't worry about it at all. Um, we Muslims only have two holidays. So we like to really go all out when um, we're celebrating. Mm-hmm. Um, we have two. We have Eid al-Fitr. And it means the festival of breaking the fast. And that that is a um, commemorated uh, holiday that follows 30 days of fasting yeah. from sun up mm-hmm. to sundown. And we do that in our adult life or when you reach puberty, um, the younger kids do it only until like 12 in the afternoon just to get a flavor of it. So my seven year old did a few days. Um, but it really is a an, an obligation upon Muslims. There's five pillars of Islam. One mm-hmm. of them is to fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, for, for those 30 days, every single year um, in the month of Ramadan that follows the Muslim calendar. Um, okay, so you do that. You partake. You fully fast from do. sun up to sundown every that's thir- right that's incredible yes Nadia. yes and there are there are instances in which people do not because of health reasons um, mm-hmm. or personal reasons or you know there are uh you know many excuses that are permitted um mm-hmm. we really truly feel like you know religion wasn't meant to be hard or difficult it was just mm-hmm. a constant reminder of god that was super essential mm-hmm. and so for my, for example my mom is diabetic so she hasn't fasted so instead what the requirement is that you feed the poor um, mm-hmm. as kind of fulfilling that obligation. So it's, it's even beautiful when you can't fast, um, mm. somehow. So what do you yeah. find as the, um, so I'm Christian and although there are many references to fasting in the Bible and mm-hmm. in the new Testament, mm-hmm. Christians don't actually generally do it, but I actually have personally, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm implemented it at times into Mm -hmm. some of my spiritual disciplines. What do you find to be the value? Do you feel that it's something you offer to God and that he is pleased with, or do you find it something that you find value in that it draws you closer to him? Do you see the distinction I'm making? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I would say, uh, I would say that and one, and one more, which Mm -hmm. is, so I would say that I am doing it as an ultimate sacrifice. It is not easy. And this is my ultimate like sign of devotion. I'm a foodie, first of all. So it's <laughs> for someone like me to like, what? Uh, you know, the food is, is a big part of like my day. Like I plan around meals, but you can still plan around meals with sun up and sundown. So I make it, I make it the thing it's possible, but mm-hmm. I do it as an ultimate like sign of devotion that this is how I'm showing you. I am a devout Muslim in um, and as far as making this difficult 30 day journey every year, um, showing, but, showing you as in showing the world or showing God, showing God, like I, okay. this is it. This is, I'm, I'm giving the the one pillar out of the five. I know that I can stand behind. I'm showing you that I'm, you know, you God that I can do this. Um, yeah. and I'm doing it for you. And then the other one is, um, a big component of like our own lifestyle, our own health, um, taking care of ourselves, a big proponent of 
why it should be encouraged and why intermittent fasting seems to be like in the known, in the trend. I mean, there's some mm. science and beauty behind, you know, the devotion that uh, centuries ago we did for God, but now we're doing it for the love of our body. And hmm. so, you know, that belief that he's not damaging us, but he's doing this for us to be, uh, you know, cl- like cleanse our bodies, have this moment, have this break. Um, mm. So there is that beauty in the health um, aspects as well, because I, I do feel like my body has a reset um, every mm. every year around Ramadan. Um, mm. And then finally, I feel like it's a good way to just remember big aspects of the other one of the other pillars of Islam, which is giving back and charity. Um, following Ramadan, we pay zakat, which is um, the two and a half, at least two and a half percent um, or 2.25 percent of um, everyone's annual income to the poor. Um, and that's just the bare minimum. We often give uh, you know more where we can. Mm. And um, that obligation is really easy when you know that you've now starved yourself essentially for 16 to 18 to 20 hours. Um, and you can truly feel how the poor have felt um, without mm. that food. So it's just all very interconnected. And um so I find that, you know, Ramadan in it, it's just a, when that Eid happens, it's a, it's a really, it's just, it's monumental in, in, in different ways, in three different mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that is in May. Um, it changes. It will change depending on the, oh, okay. uh, the calendar and the shift of the moon. Okay. Um, okay. So it'll be moving up now. It will be moving closer to uh, the earlier part of May or the earlier, later part of April. Okay. And uh, two, usually two months after that, or it is two months after that, is Dhul Hijjah, um, which is the month that we um, celebrate Hajj, which is the ultimate sacrifice, celebrating the ultimate sacrifice mm-hmm. of Abraham when he mm-hmm. was about to um, kill his son um, mm-hmm. for, for in the name of God. And so we mm-hmm. believe it was Ab- um, Abraham and Ismail. Um, mm-hmm. The Jews believe it was Abraham and Isaac. Mm-hmm. Um, either one, it really is the story of somebody saying in the ultimate devotion of God, I will do what you've asked me to do. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately God says, do, you know, there is this moment where he's like, do not, don't actually slay your son. Um, right. But the son says, do what you need to do to show that, you know, your love for, for, for God is, uh, real. Right. And, right. Um, and right. Raw, and literally <laughs> say that uh, again and raw, literally, uh, yeah. if he yeah. was about to, but, um, you know, that, that is a feast of, it is a feast. It's an ultimate feast. So, you know, it was replaced by a sheep or a lamb. Um, and so that's what we, we feast on. And that's what in that month in the Hijjah, uh, Eid al-Adha, that's the second Eid. And that we just celebrated recently where you saw me changing outfits and a lot of yes. food. And we, in this, in that Eid, we give um, our uh, prepared meat to the neighbors and to our family members and to the poor. Mm. Um, so. And that's to represent that God provided a yes. sacrifice besides the the, the exactly. son. Exactly. That's right. Or, that's right. Yeah. Like he wouldn't actually have wanted harm's way. Yep. I see. I see. Okay. Okay. So what dish do you tend to make for that? Ooh, palau, um, you know, uh, with, <laughs> with the actual meat or the goat um, or, you know, lamb, if we can, um, mm. which happens in many traditional ways in like big dechkis or big pots and pans that you would think, mm-hmm. you know, overseas is how they cooked it on slow fire. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, in the more modern version, I've tried to do it in an instant pot. And hey, look, it's been achieved. Um, 
Yes, yes. So I'm happy about that. I love Uh, it. I love it. Well, oh, gosh, I never thought about that. I guess uh, the Instant Pot comes in handy during Ramadan when the sun goes down and you are ready to eat. Absolutely. And within 20 minutes, within 30 minutes, I'm like a big advocate of the Instant Pot (laughs) (laughs) because I'm like a busy mom of three. And I've got a full-time job and I'm a foodie as well. So I'm like, this has got to, my life has got to change. And so that was like a game changer for me. Yes. And you are, let's talk about that for a second. You're a practicing attorney? Uh, yes. Yes. I work in um, labor and employment grievances issues. Um, so I work on employee and labor relations internal to a company now mm-hmm. um, where I handle anything from like reviewing age discrimination claims to race discrimination uh potential FMLA leave or retaliation claims, those types of things. So it's a, it's a very interesting, interesting thing because it's within a company. So now I'm at a place where I'm very happy that I can balance both the interests of the employer and the employee in what I do in something of uh, a company that really is focused on, uh, on making a true balance and, and it's, it's credo based, Mm-hmm. Um, or credo based, depending on who you talk to. Um, it's either credo or credo. It's changed. <laughs> it's credo based, meaning what do you mean by that? I'm sorry. So we're very, um, we're based, our credo is based on serving the employees, um, our stakeholders, our patients. I mean, this is a, it's a pharma company. Um, okay. and so it's very, so a big part, a, a large paragraph of our credo is, um, to serve the employees with just and fairness. And so when these claims come our way, we're not just writing it off. We're not just exiting them out of the company. We're not um, hurting their livelihoods. We truly yeah. understand that they are a big part um, and our yeah. workforce is a huge part of our success. Mm-hmm. And to really look at it with neutral eyes and make the right decision um, on behalf of the business, but also on behalf of the employee. So mm. let's just say it's a very feel good, do good job. Whereas mm. a y- two, two or three years ago, I was the defense side employment law attorney Mm. Um, and it was different. It was, I learned very hard and fast what Mm. mattered in large settings like that. Um, I learned a lot of great things, but I also learned that my heart was not adversarial and I was very much a different type of person Mm. that probably needed to have a career shift. So I made Mm. this career shift and, um, I've been very happy with it because I can balance multiple different things and be happy in my day to day. Mm -hmm. Well, and really it sounds like pursue, actual justice. Absolutely. Personal Mm. justice, every case, every time, um, looking at it in a way that you're actually making a difference, whether if it's not on a big political scale, which in one day I was like, I loved politics. I almost wanted to, Mm. you know, get more active in that. But, Mm. um, if I could do just justice for one person, I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so much gets, uh, hidden and obfuscated and uh, confused within the political arena. I think that to do things one case at a time, one person at a time yeah. um, is very effective. Mm. Yes. yes. And do you feel like it's put, you said you just with your old job, that was um, you were just on the defense side most of the time, well, all the time. And that yeah. just wasn't something you felt you could do. Do you think it's your faith that, has made you that kind of person. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, my faith, my family, my dad, Mm -hmm. like all all, just growing up knowing that a, the reason I went to law school was civil rights. Like Mm -hmm. I wanted to fight on behalf of the people. 
Mm-hmm. And I ended up getting a really, really great offer um, right out of law school. And I remember my dad saying, and I and I don't mean to say that employers are always the bad guy. You know, mm-hmm. I work for an employer that is absolutely not the bad guy. We have right. employees like managers that make wrong decisions and we're trying to work through it. So, uh, but I worked for the employer yeah. Um, both for my dad when I was younger and he would just be like, you know, we're, we're being sued because somebody fell outside our store, but we've got the cameras. Can you look it up? Um, mm. or mistreatment of an employee. Someone's claiming mistreatment of an employee. My dad was very, very pro employee mm. and uh, mm. he called his security guard boss when he walked into the store and the security guard would gleam. Like he would just be so happy that that kind of respect was given to him. And I mm. wanted to never, ever lose sight of the people. Um, mm. aspect of what I did. And so when I ended up going to the opposite side, not civil rights, mm-hmm. um, but the defense side, I, my heart was always like, let me figure out how I can be a better advocate for when I make the shift. So mm-hmm. I learned what I did from quote unquote, you know, what, who's a Confucius or Tao, or somebody says, know your enemy, but befriending that, them or, you know what I mean? Literally the exact quote I was thinking <laughs> of as you said that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you know, that's that it was true. And I've now learned how to be the best advocate internal to employee grievances now, because mm-hmm. I learned how, what the opposite looks like and what the opposite feels like. Right. Um, Mm-hmm. Plus, you know, I have to be very honest and say I would never have done all these food endeavors and these side projects of like food journalism and experimenting with food if I was at a law firm that ate my life away. I wouldn't have found this kind of sense of time and passion for myself. And you're working at, you know, you have to find yourself at a place that is going to give you your sense of sanity, your sense of self, mm-hmm. um, and not take all of that away from you. So I knew for more reasons than one, I had to leave, you know, mm-hmm. a law firm life. Mm-hmm. That's tremendous. And I'm sure there's people listening who are ready to make that change or have maybe it. just a little something niggling yeah. in the back of their mind saying something's mm. got to change and I you're, so. you're inspiring them. So that's good. <laughs> yes, I hope I do. It was good a big start. leap of faith. Um, it's a lot of money to leave, <laughs> mm-hmm. but you're doing it for the, you got to, yourself matters before anything else. Yeah. And, um, you know, do, do what, do, do what feels right. And, and wait, don't make the leap of faith too sudden and too soon. Do it mm-hmm. when it's right and do it with some thinking, but I hope it does inspire some people. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To, to make a plan, right? Make a plan. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Nobody I'm has to be impulsive, but make a no, plan. Definitely not. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> Take the time to make a plan. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I got it. I got it. I got it. Okay. So you said that this allows you to do a lot more with food and love of food. And I was looking at your website and I just loved your opening statement. You said, I am a wanderer through life and lover of spice. And it just gave me a thrill. (laughs) I love love that. Let's talk about wandering through life. You've already brought up your dad and you talk about that on your website Mm -hmm. and in your posts. And I feel like to talk about you wandering through life, we almost need to start with your parents and their stories. Okay, good. I'm glad you, let's do it. Yeah, all my stories end up at some point talking about why I am the way I am is because of, of them and the way they lived and their, their story. I, I, my story is really not that special and different Mm -hmm. had it not been for where they emigrated from and what their stories led me to, because I'm just a boring first generation American. Right. And Mm -hmm. I, you know, speak the same way as my, my, my Caucasian counterparts or whomever, you know, grew up here. 
Um, but my father and my mother's stories are, are really what built me into and molded me into different ways and, mm. um, showed me different aspects of life that maybe make me more special than, um, had it not been for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but my father, and it's so interesting that we end up talking today. Um, oh. I had not known this, um, when we scheduled the interview, it did not dawn on me that we were speaking on the day of independence of Pakistan. Oh, okay. Um, we are commemorating the independence of Pakistan today. Um, that happened in 1947. Yes. Um, and tell me, you said everything goes back to politics. Tell me about does. this. I know that oh. this is a very sensitive topic it, for many people. It is. It is. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were years and years of violence around Pakistan and India, um, between Hindus and Muslims and, uh, Sikhs as well got involved. Um, right. Sikh uh, they're Punjabi by language and background. Um, and my father's family and my mother's family, they're also Punjabi, they're, mm-hmm. but we're Muslim. And So Sikhs are normally they're, Punjabi by language and background, but Hindu in religion? No, but Sikh by religion. But they're, oh, they're, see, oh, so oh that's the name turbans. of religion. I, okay, it, I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. Sikhism, yes. Um, and they wear the turbans. And, yes. Um, so that's what they're identified by. Their men wear their turbans. And the Muslims obviously do not wear the turbans, but I remember my, my grandfather, there was a picture of my grandfather, um, in our living room with the turban. And I think it was like completely purely out of respect that Mm -hmm. he wore that turban. Um, and it was just by, my father grew up with sick friends, but I remember distinctly, like the history of it is so deep, but I remember politics never changed my father. Mm -hmm. He was just like, let's just get to know and so he had Sikh friends only 30 years after the partition or 40 years after the partition happened. Um, now, and- so also just to clarify, because I got I got confused by my own lack of my own ignorance. So your dad, um, it sounds like he was almost like a minority in his own culture because he was Punjabi by background and language, but yet he was not Sikh. Am I correct? That's right. He's Muslim. He was Muslim. He is Muslim. And... In Punjab, which is a province of formerly India, now Pakistan, it was okay. split right in half. And so I now there's see. an Indian Punjab, like there's an India Punjab and a Pakistan okay. Punjab. Okay. Um, before the partition even happened, um, my father's family went and emigrated to Nairobi, Kenya, which wow. a lot of Indians actually did. I mean, I don't know the percentage, but there is a there is this. Um, you know, the British took over parts of Africa at the same time of, uh, at the same time of taking over India. Um, and so, you know, whatever kind of colonization occurred, it seemed to have spilled into the Indians that just kind of went from one colonization place to another and ended up in, um, Kenya uh, or, you know, Mombasa. Interesting. Yeah. I'm looking at a map because I'm like, what's the relationship? But as it says, they're maritime neighbors. If you leave India, you, just, mm-hmm. I see that. Okay. There's also, yeah. And they, you know, the railway system was growing at the time in um, Kenya and they needed engineers from India. Um, okay. And, you know, they, I wish I knew more of the why. And I actually have an ambition to write a story on this one, one day mm. and ask the eldest uncle who's still alive out of 13 siblings or, you know, some of the younger ones, you know, just kind of like the history as to the decision that prompted them to move mm. to Nairobi. Um, you know, out of safety reasons, they ultimately did have to leave Nairobi, but they learned Punjabi at the same time of learning Swahili. 
Wow. You know, there's these like hybrid dishes of like coconut curries that, you know, still are in those countries and went into South Africa or Tanzania um, of huge Southeast Asian African dishes. And so growing up, we would call each other Pakifriki, which is Pakistani and African at the same time. And we just completely (laughs) made that up. I don't even think it's a thing, which is funny because my seven-year-old yesterday called himself a Pakistani, a Pakistani living in white America. So I was like, what's happening (laughs) with all these hybrid identities? But, you know, that's life. I love it. So your dad um, emigrated to Nairobi with his 12 siblings. He was born there. Yeah. So he was born there. Yeah. He was born in 1960 in Nairobi. um, And they had been there for quite a while already because they had been there pre-partition, they left pre-partition. So before there was even a Pakistan, they left. And right. So I I guess I'm, I'm essentially half Indian, although most Pakistan would be if they considered themselves to be, if you Mm. think about it, yes, there's so much (laughs) politics there, but at the end of the day, we were born out of that nation after a lot of strife and heartache. And I have many Indian friends that I still get along with that are both Muslim and not Muslim. And uh, you know, moving into a New Jersey community where a huge part of our minority population, one of our largest is Indian, Indian Americans. Um, so I feel very connected and the way I connect to them and that culture and India and Pakistan, even though I've only been there and visited twice, um, is through the food and mm. music. Kowali. Mm. Um, I love Kowali. And, you know, there's something moving about the music that's mm. rooted in religion, but just so beautiful to hear. And it's just very vibrant in your heart. So if anybody can YouTube Kowali and just mm. close your eyes and like take it and soak it in, it's very moving, even though you don't understand the word. So mm. spell um, that, spell that for us. Yeah. Q-A-W-W-A-L-I. It's a type it. of music that's just rooted in Sufism. Mm. Um, which is a, you know, a sect of Islam that really, I wouldn't call it a sect, but, you know, a a type of of observation of Islam where it's very spiritual. Mm. Um, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's just beautiful. Okay. Okay. Um, And that's, that and food is what connects you to your Indian uh, neighbors there in New Jersey. That's right. That's right. And my, you know, it's, and my mom's story is pretty simple in the sense that like she came from, um, uh, Pakistan. She went to Canada for a few years mm-hmm. in her like early twenties, and then met my dad at a sweet shop in in New York. His mother, <laughs> my mom loves the story, and I love it too. Um, but she was behind the counter. She was on a work visa. Mm-hmm. She was working at a sweet shop that's still there till this day. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, she served, and she went to my grandmother, and she says to her, um, "I wouldn't get those. I don't think they're that fresh." Um, so hold on, let me get you additional ones from the back. And uh-huh. my grandmother was like, who is this? <laughs> I have a son. <laughs> and it turns out that they had connections and one of my dad's siblings knew her brother and, um, and like slowly they just, you know, ultimately, um, garnered enough confidence to have them end up talking to each other. And then they got married and, um, oh. and then they moved to Jersey and started the most, you know, basic, like, American dream you can you can think of like yeah. he's just very ambitious and mm-hmm. um, but very giving at the same time and and, and with those two things yeah. together I just kind of saw my dad like I remember one of my earliest dishes was egg drop soup 99 cents mm. um you know little bowls of soup and we would order them and start simple and live simple and have mm-hmm. a Hyundai and 
you mm-hmm. know, everything was just a good start to life and everything was simple yeah. and, and beautiful. And, you know, slowly yeah. he just kind of reached uh, a place of ambition and, and, and mm-hmm. wanted to open a foundation and said, look, I'm only going to do this if I can raise enough money and capital. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so his stores started growing from 99 cent stores to larger stores, um, like little micro Walmarts in, in New mm-hmm. York. And I grew up kind of like on Saturdays going to the Bronx and Harlem and eating like Puerto Rican beans and rice and tres leches from the side bodegas and mm. you know but fried chicken and, and and just biscuits and just walking on my own and um and just exploring the streets and smelling and going to manhattan at the 96th street mosque where mm. every single color was around you because it was so close to the united nations and mm. um you know it was just such an amazing way to grow up where mm. he had without having to say it exposed me to, or even try, expose me to like a world um, where wow. I was like, okay, well, I see it now from the American lens, but now I'm going around the world. I'm going to figure this out in traveling mm-hmm. and I'm going to figure it out because I'm going to try to make the foods that I smelled or tasted or tried once with him as a memory. Mm. Um, but yeah, mm. yeah, that's kind of what took me to journey to table. <laughs> The whole reason we're talking. That's incredible. And I feel like right now in this moment, I'm I I, I loved, of course, the name Journey mm, to Table. But now I really am appreciating that there has been a long journey that started before you were even born yeah. that has taken you to the table that you fill with food every single evening. Totally. Totally. That's amazing. That's amazing. Now, when you wandered, well, to go back, so some follow-up questions to go back. Did your parents, um, when they, like you said, when they met, um, she really met your grandmother first, Mm -hmm. were they coming from a culture that did things in a very strictly arranged way or like arranged, but you kind of had a say so. So again, just to, just to relate in my husband's family, you know, he had, um, they were told you are going to marry this person and it was Uh, awful. And then there were other aunts who kind of, they were arranged, but they also fell in love, you know? So where, where were your parents on that? I would say that second one, they were Mm -hmm. arranged. So they met, they saw each other, they knew each other. My, my grandmother, took him after she went to the sweet shop, took him the next time. And she was Mm. like, they kept showing up. And so he (laughs) would look at her and he would sit on the table and order something and just like, you know, smile at her. And she would be so shy. And she, you know, her coworker told her, I think someone's looking at you. And then she's like, no, it's fine. It's fine. My dad would never say yes. He's not ready for me to get married. So it was quite, it was a little bit different too, because they started having some sort of link but when they presented it to her father, he said, absolutely not. No, thank you. Not interested. And he like oh. walked them out of the door after dinner because they, they did come over because it was mutual connections. Oh. And it was a pursuit. There was a pursuit for her. And, mm. uh, you know, I think she never said no. And mm. she never could tell her dad yes, because he would be like, do you like him? Mm. What's happening? Like, are you ready to leave? And he was very emotional because he was very attached to her and wasn't ready. But part of her wanted to marry him. And um, so it worked out as fate, you know. And and by the way, my grandmother, people say I remind them of my grandmother because she was just very forward. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She'd be like, are we doing this or not? Like, look, I've been here a few times. I love your biryani, but, you know, there's got to be something more here. 
<laughs> Let's get a ring going. I've got one in my bag. You know, in my you know. <laughs> I've got one in my bag. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Well, when you said your mom was very shy, I thought, okay, so you've got a little more of your dad's side coming out in you then, huh? No, no, she was. They were both shy. My dad Aww. was. Uh, he was a quiet force. He was a quiet Aww. bear. Um, and my mother as well. She she's a very quiet bear. There 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 was a perfect couple growing up to see them in love. I always tell my I'm told not to do this with my husband. I'm like, what? My dad would never have said it that way, or my dad would. Oh, you know, he would have said this to my mom this way. And he's like, well, we're not them. But you know what I mean? Like you're always kind of comparing that perfect marriage. They were that perfect marriage, and mm. I had that growing up, and I love that. So they were. Mm. But I got my vibrancy and my, you know, the confidence and the, you know, kind of no filter thing, which I probably should work on sometimes um, for my grandmother. So, yes, uh, mm. I can I can specifically say where I got it from. It's someone yes. on my dad's side. It's nice to have that connection. Yes. No, no, it is. Well, and it worked out well for your family that your grandmother had that personality, didn't it? If she didn't have that personality, <laughs> exactly. she may not have created this perfect marriage. <laughs> right. Exactly. She knew. She knew. She had that feeling. Well, and you have good instincts too, right? So, yeah. I would like to believe. My instincts tell me you have good instincts. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, now, when you you talk about your dad kind of growing these businesses, he kind of started with a 99 cent shop. And then as you eventually wandered around the Bronx and Manhattan and all that, is that because he was working and he would mm -hmm. bring you with him and then you'd have free reign? Or did you do these things together? Totally. Well, when I was growing up, he'd grab his briefcase, grab his coat. And I'd be like, I'm coming. And there was never, I've never, ever, ever remembered a single time where he's like, no, not today. Or, oh, no, there's just too many meetings. Or, I, mm. uh, you know, what are you going to do? And so I, I try to do that and steal it with my middle child, who you might see on Instagram in little cameos, who is the little version of me who just won't go away. Um, mm. Like, can I come too? Can I come too? And I <laughs> never say no, because in my heart, I'm like, my dad took me everywhere and that's what made me. But he took me to business meetings with buyers in Brooklyn. He took me to warehouses to check out, you know, uh, different properties in, in parts of New York, but that he was thinking about before Harlem is Harlem today, you know, thinking about looking at it that way. And it was dingy and dangerous and no other person you would think would take their like 10 to 12 to 15 year old daughter. And he just took me everywhere, everywhere. Wow. Um, and, you know, didn't think twice about it. And mm -hmm. I don't, you know, maybe he did. And maybe this was all a big scheme to make me who I am today. But I think part of him was also just genuinely free. Like he was just a person who was like, you know, open and uh, kind hearted and just, of course, I'm never going to say no to my daughter and let her just, you know, what, what's the harm? I don't know if he <laughs> thought about the benefits as much as you know, thinking to himself, what is the harm? Because there was none. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he even put up barriers. You know, I remember people saying, mm -hmm. she's going to go to college. I mean, there was some old, you know, old mentality in our community that he was not accustomed to or open to even thinking about that. He would tell them, isn't your daughter going to college? Mm -hmm. Why you, what's, you know, haven't you signed her up for classes or, you know, encourage one of my, you know, some of my aunts who were like, here's some startup money for the for to send them to at least community classes to see what their interests are in and they were like oh okay but like his his huge 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 emphasis on education either by experience mm -hmm. or in classroom is a reason why I just kept pursuing stuff and I almost stopped before going to law school and said oh you know I'll just work in nonprofits and figure it out but I was like he would have never wanted that he would have said mm -hmm. no just pick up a pen and he said don't ever be bored pick up a pen and write something. 
So mm. that's how I got into blogging. That's how I got into like constantly snapping pictures of my day of the outdoors of kayak, you know, of, of activities, the food that I eat, the food that I'm preparing. Cause I'm like that part of my day, like, why not share that? You know, that's yeah. that, that there people can grow through that. Yeah. 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 And it, it just really is amazing because, you know, I think there are some people that, you know, let's say that he had gone ahead and, and bowed to societal pressure or even, I don't want to say that maybe he really, maybe yeah. genuinely would have bought into the values, you know, yeah. that you're talking about. And I think for some people, maybe it would have been okay. They would have had personalities that were just well suited to that. And they, they would have seen that as a gift, but for you and your personality, if he had tried to repress that, it's like, it would have, there would have been an explosion really, honestly, and it either would have been internal in you or external, but it would have been, I almost want to use the word tragic, you know, and so wonderful that he saw otherwise. And it sounds like also paved the way for a lot of other people of your generation to allow them to pursue another path. Yeah. Wherever he could at a family dinner, we we were 13, uh, they were 13 siblings, and, and they all went dinners. to came to America. And, you know, uh, one of them just recently moved from Nairobi. One of them passed away in Kenya. Um, but, you know, there was a few of them that didn't make it. But I'd say like 10 or 11 of them did. Right. Okay. And so yeah. many of them were in New Jersey or New York or Connecticut. And I remember every single dinner he sat. He was a very one on one guy. He wasn't like the life of the party. But his one on ones made you feel like you were that party. It was a party of two. And he cared so much and with eye to eye and just like really wanted to know about a person's life so that if there's anything he could help with or help guide, he was that person. And we were a jokester family, like just constant jokes all the time. I mean, all kinds of jokes, a lot of sarcasm, British humor, because they moved from from Kenya to England. They brought that to America. You know, they just my aunts were crazy. And he was like probably the more reasonable team, like not a huge jokester, but like he would say them, he would snicker. But at the end of the day, he really was one of the ones that really just wanted to invest his time in, in, in bettering someone's life, like one person at a time. And like, as I'm talking about this, I'm like, holy moly, I didn't realize little things about him are like why I'm making the decisions, even as to like why I love what I do today in my job, which is just making an impact in a single case and like really making someone feel heard. Now I'm thinking about it in like full circle. You're making me realize, Becky, um, that, you know, the way I that's the way I saw him in in reality is just when he talked Mm. to somebody, it was like that person mattered. And that was the only Mm. person that mattered. Mm. Um, Tell us a little bit more about the security guard that you brought up earlier. Oh, yes. He's still with us. He's still with (laughs) us. Um, Ibrahim, thick accent. You know, he matched my dad's physique, 6'4", dark skinned, Mm. gentle in the eyes. He started in the Bronx store um, mm-hmm. and helped out in the Harlem store. And mm-hmm. anytime my dad would walk in, I, again, like he would say, hey, boss, what's been going on? And once he tried, there was a woman who stole something out of complete desperation. I mean, sometimes thefts happen because they, they need to. And he was mm-hmm. my dad was like one of those people who excused him. But then Ibrahim got hurt because he ran wow. after a person who took a small bag of something and he held Ibrahim and said, I never want you to do that again because you will get hurt. You have a family to feed. Those few dollars will not matter to me. Just take care of the store like it's yours, but don't run after a person. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, Ibrahim's loyalty has stayed after my mom had to control the stores, lost a little bit of the financial holding. It wasn't mm-hmm. as successful as it was when he was there. But my mom held down the fort because she's just mm-hmm. she held it down after he passed away when I was 18. And you were 18 when you lost yes. your father. And can yeah. we can we know your father's name? I, I haven't said it in a long time, but Faisal, you're going to make me cry. Faisal. My interview. I'm no, so choked <laughs> up thinking about your yeah. dad. And yeah. I think, again, just in this time of things being so desperate, I think to remember that as long as we each pursue our calling with faithfulness, with kindness, with placing other people first, that's it. We can let go of everything else. We can turn off the news and do what your dad did. And and I am so moved by what you're telling me about your father. I really am. So thank you for sharing his life with us. And I'm glad you shared his name, Faisal, because I think we all want to bear witness to this. Yeah. His nickname was Tipu. Tipu. Now, wait, why? What does that mean? That was something. Well, his nickname actually also was Jalibi. And Jalibi is a, this is a funny one because it's a sweet, it's an Indian sweet that you fry and it, and you fry it with a, um, with a sort of, uh, something that goes into spirals. So it turns into a spiraling sweet and you dip it in sweetness and you just eat it as orange. And I thought it was always because he loved it. Uh-huh. But Jalibi, actually, my uncle told me a few weeks ago when uh-huh. I called him and did a FaceTime session and said, I miss my dad. Just tell me stories about oh. when he was little. Why was he Jalibi? And so he was like, well, he was actually Jalibi not because he ate the sweet, um, although he loved it because uh-huh. he was a little fatty growing up. Um, <laughs> he did it because the way he was on my on his father is that he would climb up him and twist in his arm and go around his head that it was such a twisting mechanism. And my father, my grandfather, who was very just a strict dad, but also very loving, um, allowed him to do it. He was the youngest of 13 and he would just kind of like spiral around him and be free. And uh, so he twisted into a Jalibi uh, is why he had that nickname. (laughs) Um, So it's just so funny. What a great story and what a gift that you have so many older siblings for, you know, that that can remind you and share you of those things. So, well, tell me a little bit about, are you on your lunch break? Is that how you're doing this? Yes, I am. Okay. It's good. I have another 15 minutes. Okay. I want to be sensitive, but tell me a little bit about your mom. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Um, Talk about, talk about somebody who the most simple, sweet, just three meals on the table, um, very caring and giving and loving and in the most quiet sense, never yelled at us, taught through, taught through action of kindness and, and softness. And, um, I wish I could be softer, but she has that kindness and so- she had that mm-hmm. kindness and softness growing up in how she handled us and how she handled my dad and talked to him during his stressful days. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, 18 years old, 2005, The world crumbles on her. She's 41 years old. She loses her husband, father of three, lifeline, best friend. She didn't have a lot of friends because he was her friend. Her siblings were her friend. The extended family were, um, you know, they would laugh at night. And she lost him. And I don't even think she had time to mourn. She would cry by herself. I would go to her and she would wipe it and be like, hey, what's how are you? And I'd be like, mom, it's fine. And she's like, well, you're not crying. And I'm like, well, I cry when I have to, and we'll work it out together and we'll figure it out. But Mm. I, you know, she kind of just trekked on and she stopped cooking from that day. She Mm. stopped cooking and started living and started like stopped the housewife life 
and said, mm-hmm. I can't cook for you. We're going to get somebody where they're going to cook or you've got to, you, you know, I'm going to call you from the store and you're going to make okra for me or you're going to mm-hmm. do that chickpea salad that you do or I'm going to walk you through something on the phone. And her meal stopped from there because she would just feed the way my dad loved uh, and then just enjoyed every little thing that she made from simple to ornate. And he would just mm-hmm. appreciate it. She just mm-hmm. stopped that life because she didn't have time for it. And she said, we will, we will be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, we slowly just went incrementally from five stores to three, three mm-hmm. stores to two properties, one property sold half of it, you know, to a maintenance level mm-hmm. that took about 10 years to figure out. And she mm-hmm. still till this, until this day is managing one of the properties, um, where, you know, I help all, in some of the legal contracts, but you mm. know, she's doing it. It's her. It's this mm. little Pakistani, you know, mm. immigrant that came in 1984, um, who still has a very thick accent, although she's been here for like more than half of her year, mm. uh, years, and just is a force to reckon with in the best of ways, you know, it's still mm. a kind soul, still giving back, still charity based. And at the same time, made me and my sisters never nervous about our state of life. And I remember mm-hmm. just simply having to tell her like, mom, I'm, I, I know I'm going to this private school and I'm 18 and I know I was admitted and I know, you know, we had a long chat about it and I did it for one year, but I don't know if we're going to be able to sustain the living that Papa left us. And if you're going to continue to close down stores, we still have two options. You know, we still have my sister's. Mm-hmm. I don't need to be paying for this private school education. I'm going to go to public school and we'll figure it out. Grad school, we'll figure mm, it out. Nadia. And mm. I made that decision. I'm happy I did, mm. even though it made, we weren't like struggling in that sense. But mm-hmm. I'm happy I did. But I remember my mom saying, do not do it for the money. We will mm. figure it out. You know, your dad, mm. what, what would your dad have wanted? And I said, you know, my, my, Papa, my dad would have just wanted us to have the best education and for us to be hardworking. That's it didn't right. matter where. It didn't matter what. He went, you know, he went That's to a, right a good school. It didn't, you know, all that didn't matter. It was hard work that right. mattered. Right. And your heart and your core and like your purpose. And so I said, forget it. I'm not wasting fifty, forty thousand dollars on a mm. on a tier a certain tier school. You know what I mean? When mm. I can be in the I know. I know. Yeah. Money. So I'm glad I made that. But she, I remember her telling me, Don't worry about it. Do not worry about it and always ask what would Papa do. She always it's, asked that. Mm, mm. It sounds like of all the qualities that are admirable about your family, one that you all three share is being very adaptable. Oh, yeah. Well, we had forced forced to be adaptable. My yeah. dad, it was a choice. Like, it was a choice that we mimicked. But we yeah. all, you know, but also talk about faith. Like, we just, we constantly believe that there was a greater purpose, yeah. a greater being, a greater thing, something yeah. in our universe that I believe to be God. Yeah. Um, but others, you know, can believe whatever. But it, there was, there was something there that was going to protect us until this, mm. until this day has everything, every chapter of my life. If it's not Him looking down, which we don't actually believe, we believe mm-hmm. you know God's looking down, and um, mm. the prayers of the deceased are with you still, but. You know, there has been a every step of the way a blessing from God, mm. and that mm. you know, it's just mm-hmm. taken me monumental ways mm. um, from that. Well, and really to just go back to this story and the meaning that I think it holds for both of us, the story of Abraham and his son is that there is no reason to fear. There is no reason to avoid change when you believe that when the time comes, there will be that lamb or that sheep in the thicket that something will be provided for you so you can move forward fearlessly, you know? 
Um, oh, I love that connection, Becky. That was great. Well, that's You're what the story great. means. <laughs> that's what the story means to me. But you have really just made me like cry through this whole interview. And oh I kind my, of still I am. You heard so, me. <laughs> so I, I know we've got 10 minutes. So I'm yeah. going to go down to just two, just two yeah. questions. Tell me yeah. why you chose the chicken korma recipe, which first of all, I need to yeah. tell you, I'm actually making again tonight Yay. because when I made it Wednesday, and it was really not a difficult recipe. Yes, when I made it yes. Wednesday, my 10-year-old said, can we have this for breakfast, lunch, oh, and dinner? That is so awesome. <laughs> and I made a double match. So I have four children. Oh, I have four boys. Oh, and um, Becky, I have three boys. That's so funny. Oh, that's, that's so, so funny. great. Yes. So I made a double batch and it still all went, which kind oh, of surprised me. <laughs> that is so amazing to hear. Okay. So why, why this recipe? Yeah. So chicken korma, I wanted, this is exactly what I wanted. I wanted it to be something that anybody could just pick up and do and feel like they connect with Pakistan or India. Like this, I wanted our culture and our food to be attainable and adaptable and for somebody to do it within half an hour. Cause it only took you what, 20 minutes, 30 minutes max. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's life. Like we are just manic working, busy yeah. women in our lives. And at the same time and component, like, I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that there is a growing, um, interest in our children to learn our culture in different, in different cultures. So I use chicken korma for my Pakistani kids, which is again, like I said, something my seven-year-old <laughs> said, which is Pakistani roots and living in white America. So he, you know, I want them to feel very connected to the food as well. And so that doesn't, that spans beyond us. I want white families, black families, other, you know, uh, Hispanic families to pick up an Indian recipe and say that when I can, when I meet my neighbor across the street, I know their flavors. I know their people. I know what, you know, what their core is. And we are a fun, loving, good culture based on food and vibrancy and life and not what you see on TV. So mm -hmm. why chicken korma? It's doable. It's, it's something that connects us. In, mm. it, the spices are easy. They're simple. It's, it, it reminds me of the spice route. I mean, you've got red chili, you've got turmeric um, in some, some of it. Um, it's got basics like, you know, the salt. Um, and you have just components of coriander and cumin. So that that's what beautiful cardamom, that you, beautiful cardamom. just two pods of cardamom can mm. completely transform a dish, which is the magic of cooking, right? Yeah. Two pods of cardamom and a stick of cinnamon or half a stick of cinnamon are just, they will take one dish and turn it into another. And so yes. how and this brown is, your onions? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, this is a technique that Indians use that I did not know before I started this podcast, but this idea of taking whole spices mm -hmm. and um, frying them in the oil so that the oil itself yeah. becomes infused with this flavor. That's right. I am completely confused as to why this technique That's has not made its way <laughs> into mainstream America. Like, Let's why am I just learning this at this age when I've read a good number of cooking books and magazines over my life? Like, yeah. this technique is brilliant, and it's why the chicken is so flavorful, because it's totally. cooked in this oil. Yeah. That is infused with these flavors. And I, I really do not understand. Maybe you have some insight into why this technique isn't mainstream in America, but it's, it's brilliant. Yeah, it is. It is. Because if you think about the main American mainstream dishes, you know, oil is not a big, you know, we fry, we fry in America. I can say that we, because I'm mm -hmm. born and raised here. Yeah. Americans use oil as a frying mechanism. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, a little bit of saute here and there, but we don't think of oil, and the Italians use it as dipping oil. But Pakistanis and Indian culture use oil as a, as, in every sense that I just explained, plus infusion. Yes. Plus we use it on top of our dishes. So tempering, if you take oil and yeah. you add curry leaves and you just get that curry leaf infused into the yes. oil, you and with some black, uh, you know, black, whole black pepper, uh-huh. uh, whole pods of something, you know, you uh, just add a few more things and you, you fry that oil, you put it on top of dal which is lentil mm-hmm. that you eat it just like that. You'll just mix it a little bit after you add that hot oil, tempered oil. Mm-hmm. And that tempering is also a huge part of our culture. And like, it's just playing and mastering through experimenting. No one needs to be a master, just experiment mm-hmm. with it. And you'll learn so much about different cultures and the beauty mm-hmm. of our spices. Um, oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the first Indian recipe, I thought, what, why is this the yeah, first time yeah. I've ever done this? Why are we always buying everything powdered and putting it in at the oh, end totally. and totally. making everything just kind of pasty yeah. <laughs> when you yeah, can yeah. use it in from the beginning? I just thought, that's why? I, I was blown away, but that's part of what makes this so good. So I think the very last thing I'd like to ask, since I just have five yes. minutes, is really talk to you about yourself and your identity. I think particularly... Honestly, I'm thinking as an American because mm-hmm, I'm mm-hmm. uh I think I'm just always concerned about how we can relate to people in a way that's more productive, I guess. So mm-hmm. I'm curious what your experience has been as both a Pakistani, um, mm-hmm. with with um <laughs> with complicated roots, but a Pakistani <laughs> and <laughs> and as a Muslim yes. and how that affects your vision, you know, of yourself, your choices, which one, like in, in this balance, which one do you think plays um, a part? And then on the other side, with how others perceive you, you know, mm-hmm. and your experience as an American, as a Pakistani American, and as a Muslim American, talk to me a little bit about that. Sure, sure. So I, I identify, I'll be very clear in saying mm-hmm. that I mainly identify as a Muslim American. So my mm-hmm. faith, to me, is more prominent, more important than a, a culture or a country. Okay. Um, Muslim America, Muslim part of the world. I mean, that those are the things that I connect mainly with. I like to find myself connecting the world through my faith. So if I go to Turkey, I'm looking at it from the lens of what did the Ottoman Empire look like? How did it change with the Byzantines? You know, what, you know, how, what, what does Muslim Turkey look like versus secular Turkey and Mm -hmm. understanding politics that way. But Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, my question always to myself is where, where was Islam here? How has God impacted this place that we're visiting? And Mm -hmm. that kind of deep rooted, like Muslim faith in me is something I wear literally on my head. So Uh, I do choose to wear the hijab. um, Yeah. In the U.S., I've, I've worn it since I was 12. I've known it. I wow. don't even remember what it was like to not wear it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've changed the style over time. So it's like more to the back. It's more open. I Some some say it's a secular way of wearing it. I feel like it's a protective mechanism in a place that is unwelcoming towards wearing it the right way. So I found in mm. myself, in corporate America, I just felt most comfortable that I was wearing it the way that I wear it, which I feature on my page, obviously, Um, 
all the time when I turn the camera to my face, uh, maybe too close. Um, <laughs> never. <laughs> never. <laughs> um, but I found that that was my balance. Like that was mm. my, I'm a good American. I'm a good Muslim. I'm in a corporate America. I get it all and I'm balancing it. So I'm wearing it and this is the way I'm wearing it. And so my kids, when I'm not wearing it, um, they remind me, they're like, you forgot, you forgot mom. And mm. I'm like, oh, okay. And I talked to my seven-year-old, which, cause I'm just super strange like that. I was like, so when you get married, are you looking for somebody who wears it or doesn't wear it? Like, mm. what does it mean to you? He's like, mm. I like when you wear it, mom, but he doesn't mm. know how to answer. Like, what does it mean to you? Yeah. Yet? But I'm, I want to get there because I only have boys. I don't have girls that have to make that decision, but yep. I want them to understand and respect the decision that I made to wear it. Um, we live in yeah. some tough times. And I think if I can survive as a Muslim America through 9-11 as mm-hmm. a teen mm-hmm. or a preteen, I don't even remember what I was. Um, mm. And now uh, through corporate America, through law firm America, through law firm Manhattan America, uh, to corporate America, to mothering and going to baseball games as the yeah. only person with a tan that wasn't bought um, mm. from a beach you know, the, the quintessential real culture tan, um, you know, what does that look like for my kids where I'm not, I don't want to be different, but if I'm different, let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm always willing to have those discussions, good, bad, indifferent. If you've got something to say, I really just rather talk and connect with somebody yeah. on a more meaningful level than be stared at. And yeah. sometimes I will say hi and shock the conscious out of somebody and they would be so surprised that I'm after giving them giving me a death stare about how I look or how I appear that I did that. A, it's showing my kids that I'm not just going to let somebody treat me differently. And B, if they're ready to talk or take it up, I'm ready there. And let's just have some real conversations around the realities of being different. Mm. Mm. You know, but mm-hmm. definitely tough times to live. But um, it's how I want to raise them. Mm. well at the end of the day they always come home comforted by your good food right ah, that's right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and i'm willing to give anybody good bad and different you've got feelings about me let's let's meet over a meal that's like my thing yes um, yes mm. let's connect through food and just sit it out hash it out politics happens at our dinner table you mm-hmm. better believe it um mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm willing to always open my door well, post Corona. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Well, that is all I mean, any of us could ever want is to sit down, enjoy a meal, and yeah. to talk. I think yeah. that would take care of a lot of things. So, um, Nadia, thank you so much for giving thank me you. your time. And I feel like we have shared a meal because we've shared yes. a chicken korma. So, <laughs> yes, I feel like yes, a guest. Yes. I feel honored. Oh, no, so. you need to come over with your four boys and my three boys. They all, it needs to be a seven boy camping trip in reality. <laughs> it would One be day. a great, it would be a great time. And my husband also would absolutely amazing, love amazing. talking with you. It'd be wonderful. So, thank that. you for your time. Have a great rest of the work day make something delicious tonight and um oh and tell everyone real quickly where to find you sure yes instagram journey to table all one word um no period same on facebook and journey to table.com um and thank you becky i really really love this conversation me um, too and hope all the best for you you too thank you okay. take care okay. have a great okay. day bye. okay bye-bye Thanks again to Nadia. You can find her contact information as well as her chicken korma recipe on the blog. 
Again, I do ask that you take a moment to subscribe so you won't miss some of the incredible episodes coming up this month. Also, if you enjoyed this conversation with Nadia as much as I did, please share it with your family and friends. Both would mean so, so much to me personally and help grow this podcast. Thank you and have a great week, my friends.